Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. People could get hurt or killed. You could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at NHTSA.gov. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have SeatGeek on my phone, the app, And it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just used SeatGeek to buy tickets to El Trafico, LAFC versus LA Galaxy. I'm really excited about that. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, watch listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. That is promo code WATCH for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right here, right now, right from your phone. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, meet me at the Sol. It's going down. It's Andy Greenwald. What's up, man? How are you doing? I'm great. You know, uh, seven days into this hotel stay and I'm definitely holding it together. There, there are no <laughs> cracks. No cracks. What's, the, what's the first thing that, go, that goes for you? Uh, sobriety? <laughs> is, is that what you're fishing for? No, I mean, like, is it, is it, what's the first thing that starts to get to you? Is it like a weird air conditioner sound? Is it the smell of the carpet? Like, what's the first thing where the, you're like, now I live in a Kafka story? I think the air conditioning is the thing, right? Because it's absolutely necessary uh-huh. and I'm very grateful for it. But, um, there's really no uh, respite from it. Yeah. So I think it, it starts to get into, it gets up in the sinuses. Yeah, because you know? your sinuses start to look like the road. Dude, have you been here? In the Cormac McCarthy sense, yeah. You drive 10 minutes in any direction, it is the road. Yeah, it's just like, hey, there's that guy with the shopping cart. (laughs) It's not inaccurate. But but I have to say, and I know we were going to get to it later more organically, but I I am going a little native here. I'm really enjoying the bright, fresh, and delicious chilies that that, that accentuate everything. I think I'm I'm figuring it out. I think think I'm fitting in. As long as you got to exercise, got to get fresh air. Yeah, uh, right. you gotta dip into all the local cuisines. Mm-hmm. Make yourself a make yourself a schedule, man. Just stick to it. <laughs> like what? Like like yoga at seven a.m. Yeah, every day. You know, you- downward dog. Then get some poblanos. <laughs> Just go for it. Make yourself a schedule. What do you think I'm doing? Here? <laughs> <laughs> do you do you know how many conversations and meetings I've had, and it's not even uh, it's not even end of day here. My yet. first story for Grantland was yeah. this: uh, I went to England um, to do wait, wait. the Champions Your League. What first story for Grantland was? You went to England? Yeah, you didn't know that. That was the glory days, man. We thought we had it all figured out. I went what? to England. I was I got hired. I was gonna, I hired to be the soccer writer at Grantland, and I went to England to go see the Champions League final between Barcelona and and uh, Manchester United yeah. and the Championship Division promotional game uh, at Wembley. So there's these two games at Wembley over the course of like three or four days, and I think I was in England for like five days, and they were like, well, "Where do you want to stay?" And I was like, "Well, probably somewhere close to Wembley Stadium," not knowing that Wembley Stadium oh was a solid like 50 minutes outside of London, and also was essentially. One bar that might have been in Twin Peaks, it was called like the Blue Dot or something, and I never went in because I was too nervous. And then just like a a lot of other just 
post-industrial like carpet stores and stuff outside of that area. So essentially all I did was go into my hotel room, walk around in a circle, walk back outside, realize there was nothing to do, walk big. I mean, it was like this loop where I was just going in and out of my hotel room 16 times a day thinking that one day I'm going to leave and it's going to be interesting outside. Uh, and then I realized I could just get on the train and go to London. I want to give you the requisite sympathy that the tenor of that story demands, but I feel compelled to reference instead the fact that one of my earliest Grantland stories was about the teaser poster for the Avengers movie. <laughs> and that was like 850 words. You've lapped me so since just, then, though. I just feel like we, you know, I, I would have liked a travel budget to really <laughs> investigate the making of the poster. I'm just saying it was a different, it clearly was a different time for everybody. All right. Andy's in New Mexico. And in honor of that and in honor of our own uh, tardiness with this show, because I feel like we've never really given it its due on the watch. We are going to be talking today about Better Call Saul. And I suspect we are going to be talking about Better Call Saul a fair amount this season. It's season four uh, debuted two weeks ago, uh, and so episode three of the season is on tonight, on Monday night. So we're going to be talking about the first two episodes of season four and the show as a whole. And then Andy and I both happened to go to a bunch of different movies this weekend with a bunch of different reactions to them. So we'll probably do a kind of summary of some stuff that's at at theaters now in the, in the second half of the show. But Greenwald, I thought we really need to get into Better Call Saul because I think that uh, if I were an objective listener to this podcast— and right. I was offering some notes. I'd say probably that this is one of our biggest blind spots over the last three or four years. I, I wouldn't go that back that far, but I, because we covered it fairly heavily, I think the first season. But I, I remain fascinated by the fact that we both, without having any conversations about it, without ever really realizing we were doing it, we both completely slept on season three. Yeah, and I think it wasn't until season three was two or three episodes old that we even realized we had missed the beginning. We probably made some classic watch vague promise to revisit it, and then we didn't. And I think, you know, people who've been listening know that, that I rectified that um, recently when it was on Netflix and was shocked, not at the quality of the show, because I think I knew how good it was, but at how pleasurable it was, particularly in that binging format. And yeah. so I was, I was keyed up and ready to go for season four, and it has not disappointed in any way so far. But I'm, I'm very curious, as I imagine listeners might be too, how you found your way back to it. Because even when we realized we had missed a few episodes, even when we realized we had missed an entire season, even when we got feedback from listeners, from the Facebook group, from Superfan Sam Mail that we were missing out, we, we just didn't feel the urgency. Yeah, and I'm going to say why that is, but I think I might disappoint those people even more in doing so. And we should say right now off the top that we will be, this is a spoiler zone, so we're going to be talking about things that happen across the first three seasons and the first few episodes of season four. Uh, and I can answer that question really simply because it, it was a revelation for me in watching these season four episodes, man. I didn't care for the character of Chuck. <laughs> Okay. I really, uh, I, I know that this is not something that I have an argument for. It's not something that I have like, here's why this this character was holding this show back. If anything, the tension between Chuck and Jimmy was the truly original work of this show. I mean, I think that yeah. I have tons of, of, uh, of high praise for it, and I have lots of detailed reasons why I think it's a great show. But for me, and this is just one of those things that, I, it, you can't legislate this. We, we, you, Andy and I can't talk you into or talk you out of liking something you like or like liking something you don't like. Um, I just never really connected with the odyssey of that character with his uh, with his illness. And I found that I just I, I would rather honestly watch Kim Wexler do doc review then deal any more with the Jimmy Chuck thing. And I, I just, I never enjoyed it. You know what I mean? And it's nothing about Michael McKeon that I dislike. And it's nothing about Bob Odenkirk's performance with him. And it's nothing about the excellent writing that went into that character. I just never really connected on a visceral level with the plot, that plot line. And I think that was a huge, huge thing. Because if you don't want to watch a major part of a show, you're just not going to watch it. So... It's interesting. This season four has had a little bit of a, a noticeable uptick in ratings. And I think that's obviously that Better Call Saul is reaping the same benefits that Breaking Bad did, which is this is ostensibly an AMC show that is highly, highly helped out by Netflix because 
those episodes are readily available to watch in the format, which you've suggested is more suited towards this show, which is the binge watch format. And I basically slammed through season three and got through it. Uh, knowing yeah. already what was going to happen just because it had been spoiled for me by the internet. But just, I was able to get through it. And then as soon as I hit season four, man, as soon as I watched Smoke and Breathe, the first two episodes, I was like, now now it's the show that I want it to be. Well, it's worth noting that this season so far is really, really approaching Breaking Bad territory in terms of yes. the, the, the material. Not even, I don't, I, not specifically about the quality. Um one of the things that I have used repeatedly to kind of just knock Saul down a peg, even when I was praising it, was the frustration I felt with the prequel format, which is that knowing where things are going, knowing that certain characters are not in jeopardy yet, hurts the, hurts the drama and hurts our emotional investment in the characters and in their situations and in their relative levels of, of peril. There's a way to flip that, and I think this speaks again to Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould just diabolical Heisenbergian genius, the way they can, the way they, they, they take potential negatives, turn them into positives, the way they at least give the appearance of meticulous planning, which is to say that if you know where things are going and you are confident in that, and you're confident that people will want to see that, then you have this enormous luxury of showing all the steps. It's not just the slide down or the, or the, Let's use the, it's, like, it's like a giant water slide, basically, the Breaking Bad line. The first three seasons of Better Call Saul are watching them go up the steps. If you pitched a show that was about these middle-aged brothers having relatively low, although increasingly higher stakes, squabbles in, in and around the court system of Albuquerque, New Mexico, you would never, ever, ever, you would get laughed out of the room, you would never get a pickup. Right. But knowing what was looming, the darkness around the corner, allowed them the luxury of really telling a story granularly, step by step, in a way that, again, much like Breaking Bad retrospect, looks absolutely brilliant. The emotional track necessary for a moment like the moment between Howard and Jimmy in season four premiere, when Jimmy just gets up and says, well, Howard, I guess that's your cross to bear. Yeah, and then goes that and is, makes coffee, yeah. That is 30 hours, 30 episodes worth of track. And that, in general, is my feeling about the show, and, and, and it's only increased since I've started to go down the potentially, you know, the folly-filled road of making a, a dramatic television show, also filming in Albuquerque, which is, oh my God, what indulgence, what glorious indulgence this is. How wonderful. And I don't mean indulgence in a wasteful sense. I mean, they're aware of the goodwill they've earned from audiences, from the people who make the line-item budgets at AMC. Look what they've done with it. Look at this aesthetic and artistic um, I, I don't want to say masterpiece, that's sort of an over, overwrought word, but just achievement that they've done. Well, and, yeah. and to bring it all the way back around, there were definitely times when the, the micro push-pull of the Chuck relationship, I agree with you, was frustrating. Um, but it, it, maybe this is old TV talking, maybe this is old man Greenwald talking, but I feel so grateful for it now that we are where we are. Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting to think about how this show is always going to be defined by Breaking Bad. And in some ways, I felt like the first few seasons of it were a conscious um, pulling away from that definition so that the investment that they do in the minutia of these people's jobs to the point that you and I, I think we're having a lot of fun at the expense of like Sandpiper class action suits and stuff like that. And yep. long montages of highlighting. Um, I think that. Look, your mileage may vary. There are probably people out there who felt like the revelation of the show was how different it was from Breaking Bad in the beginning. And now I'm kind of like a Johnny-come-lately who's excited because uh, Gus is have has a, ma a major role on the show, that Giancarlo Esposito is fully back, and that we're seeing the sort of actually the development of the New Mexico drug empire in front of our eyes rather than uh, having that be something that's off on the margins that Saul will, or Jimmy slash Saul will eventually confront. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to admit to while I was enjoying and getting a real charge out of the return of Lydia, out of the prominence of Gus, uh, the twins holding, you know, standing guard over um, Salamanca's uh, hospital bed, um, there is also a part of me that's like, well, now we are tipping over into fully another show, one a show that we've already seen. And I think, though, that 
Gilligan and Gould have a very, and Gould is the sole showrunner this season, uh, unlike past seasons when he shared duties with Vince Gilligan. Um, they have a pretty good sense of like when to, when to give the candy and when not to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're going to over, overplay their hand. But um, it also has caused me to appreciate um, a character like Nacho, who has been MVP of the show. MVP of the show. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So Michael Mando, uh, veteran of Orphan Black, has been a strong performer on the show and played, you know, a useful function, um, both in terms of the, the beginnings of this drug empire and also his relationship with Mike. Uh, his father had a more prominent role last year and what that would mean with, with Salamanca, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, we realize, and again, probably more astute or at least more avid viewers figured this out a long time ago, oh, well, here's a character we don't know his face here's a character who is suddenly becoming much more essential to it. And I think, you know, long-time Breaking Bad heads, like Deep Obsessives, will know um, something that I didn't even realize uh, until recently, until some recent memory-jogging Googling, that in Saul's first appearance on the show, when um, Walt and Jesse take him out to the desert to get him to talk and basically make him think that they're going to kill him, the first thing that he screams out to make them not kill him is that it was all Ignacio's fault. Right, right. So... There is some DNA there, and there is some um, uh, thread connecting that hasn't happened. But all of a sudden, you notice, oh well, that's a great that's a great character. That's a great place for this to go. Um, there is more there there uh, than a Breaking Bad fan service. Although, you know, again, weirdly, the show manages to do that too. Yeah, I mean, I think Ray Seahorn is obviously like probably my favorite. She, she, she's the MVP. Come yeah, on. she's she's the MVP of the show. But like so far. And in the and in the as his as his role has sort of developed, and especially in these first two episodes, I have found myself really infatuated with Michael Mando and his performance, and the way in which his performance now, you know, Seppenwall, Alan Seppenwall, who I would not want to mischaracterize his opinions about the show, he's obviously very into it, but like he was sort of saying that this is now two shows, you know, that there is essentially two shows that are connected loosely by Mike. I agree, but I think that there are thematic similarities between the two shows that make them feel a part of one. And for me, aside from the fact that visually the stories are told very similarly, and this is probably the most texturally rich show on television, every jacket, every prop, every set design uh, note, every bit of production design, the cars, the outfits, Kim's ponytail, as was uh, memorialized by Jen Chaney on Vulture. Like, there's so much stuff in this show that you can almost reach out and touch, despite the fact that it's this flat, bland desert light, that it feels so real. And within that world, I think that the genius of this early part of the season so far are the parallels of the oppressive relationship people have with work and the inescapable hamster wheel that most people who need to make any money are on with not only the constant need to replenish uh, funds, but the addictive quality of doing that work in the first place. So you essentially have Saul in this kind of manic state of looking for and rejecting work. You've got Kim who nearly died because she was working so hard. And you've got Nacho who wants sort of wants out of the game to sort of maintain that connection to his father and his family and whatever life he sees outside of the criminal underworld, but is instead at the end of the second episode, fully the property of another human being. And the way in which the idea of what we do as a job defines us is something that I think unites the two halves of the show. Well, and it also unites it with the mothership with Breaking Bad, because the, the scene that we had last week where Jimmy talks his way into a job and then mocks the people for being so foolish as to grant him his wish and give him the job, which is just a brilliantly executed scene. The turn with a turn that made complete sense that I didn't see coming because of how well everything was disguised and, and, and articulated. That's Walt, that's Walter White. You know, that is the, the, the grinding frustration of not just believing, knowing you are special and yet your circumstance would have you believe otherwise. Um, the desire, I mean, you know, for as much as the first show, and I guess now increasingly the show is about people chasing a high from drugs, or at least what the drugs themselves are, how they're made, the high that Walter got from 
you know, transcending his life. Yeah, I did a it for me. Becoming a superhero. Yeah. That's really what the show is about. And so we see that now paralleled in Jimmy's transformation to Saul with so much, again, so much track, so many steps to be fully invested in it. It's remarkable. I think, um, by the way, I, I know our podcast ombudswoman, Alexa Fogel, will call us on this. I believe it's Ree Seahorn. Oh, sorry. Re. I don't know, though. So Alexa no, you're right. It's, I've been corrected on that before. It's, I, I, that's my bad. I, I just want to say, we've talked about it in a hundred different ways. I just love her performance so much. I love seeing a performance that is, it is 360%. Three, that's not even a made-up thing. 360%. Her, <laughs> it is a performance that is 360 degrees realized. She yeah. is completely comfortable in, in who Kim is and who Kim is when she's in court, who Kim is when she's on the couch. And we understand that just on a molecular level. And to see her un, uncork the cannon, so to speak, you know, in that scene with Howard yeah. last week. But I got to say, I love, I love Patrick Fabian's performance. When the show began, I thought, well, boy, they got the perfect guy to be a tanned, empty suit. You know, he, he could be a game show host. And then you give him, again, you trust your actor and you give them, you walk them slowly through the character, through the world, so that by the time we get to this season and he has to play the notes that he's playing, that not just the actor hasn't shown us before, but you, you have to believe that the character has never played these notes before of regret, of sorrow, of shame, of guilt, of confusion. It's really riveting. And it, but I mean, just again, think about the tenor of this conversation, because when we were talking about other shows recently, we were talking about Succession and how much we love it. Yeah. Our, we could have a granular conversation about succession, but you know it's a different show completely, and it's in its first season. So, but a lot of our conversation were about the big swing, you know, and about the big character moments, or the or the the best joke, or the most, you know, just basically a, a Geiger counter, and then noticing the peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about Saul, it's it's crazy. It's like we're at some sort of Danish design school in Copenhagen, you know, and we're, and we're, we're going nuts over the way the, the armrest is shaped on a chair because what a beautiful chair and it wouldn't work if you had a different wood grain in the armrest or whatever. It's really talking about TV on an artisanal level that we don't. Yeah. And also, I mean, for something that's so detail oriented and has so much plot to communicate because there's a lot of this person is going here and this is why this matters and this is why we're showing you this. I mean, even something like Mike's inspection of Madrigal uh, electromotive, like the plant that he goes to and you know talks his way into, which is sort of this heist without a treasure. You know, he it's everything about a heist movie except for the heist. Um, I thought that I was while I was watching that, and I we were going to talk about some of these movies that we saw over the weekend, and I I saw two movies that I did not care for in different ways, but both movies had basic problems with like why is this happening or why is this scene taking place the way it it is written? Why didn't they rewrite this or make it less cliched? And that never ever happens on Saul. I'm never like I know exactly what's going to happen in the scene. I didn't know what was going to happen in the Neff copier scene. I don't know what's going to happen when when Howard's sitting there with uh with Kim. I don't know what's going to happen when Nacho walks out of that first uh, drug buy after he he and his buddy get the six keys instead of the five. If they're going to leave and feel like they're big guy, like for as much as a lot of this show is predetermined where it's going to end, I have no idea how it's going to get there. And that kind of leads me to my last question to you about this show. How are they going to pace this thing from a from the on the on the long tail? Because this is now in season four. And right. I think by all accounts, everybody involved, this is the best job they've ever had. They love working with these people in this place on these characters telling this story. This show is slow. It's weird. It's like it's got this end point, but it's also slow. And also the folks making the show are so creative. I could see them figuring out a way that it goes into that gene territory, which they are obviously fascinated by, given the amount of care they, they've been putting into telling that story visually. So let me ask you, I, and I don't, I don't mean to be like, I don't, I, don't mean, look, I don't want to look a gift horse, but how long do you want this show to be on the air for? Well, I think it's worth noting that everyone involved is already pleasantly surprised where they're at. I think that um, in recent interviews, or at least the interviews at the beginning of this season, Gilligan and Gould both said that they expected to be with Saul by now, if they made it this far. Um, they had no idea there was this much story. 
to get to where we are now, the beginnings of, of Saul forming at season four. So I think whatever um, guidebook they had drawn up, I think that's probably already been tossed. Well, they insist that I, every season is like, they don't have any, they have a couple of things they want to do, but for the most part, each season is its own creation. Yeah, which I admire. And, and I think that there's a lot of lessons you believe to be it? learned from. Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, the, the genius of Breaking Bad isn't that they planned everything. It's that they painted themselves into a corner every week and figured out a creative way to, to escape. Right. And, you know, they, they still talk about how showing the gun in Walt's trunk at the end of, like, was it the first, the beginning of the final bifurcated season right, right. was the worst thing they ever did because then they had to spend the rest of the year figuring out how they were going to pay it off and they had no idea. Oh yeah, they were um, just talking I just read an interview I think with Peter Gould where they were just basically trying to figure out how Mike gets a gets a badge to get into Madrigal and they yeah. spent like days trying to figure it out. And yet we never see them sweat. I mean, yeah. I think that's the most incredible thing. Um, that's a dry so, this exactly. <laughs> I think that um, you know, this season's opening with Gene, with the post-Breaking Bad black and white world uh, at Cinnabon was, I, I didn't time it, but it felt longer mm-hmm. than previous um, prologues, which to my mind suggested we were getting closer. Certainly the season has borne that out. But I don't know what they intend, and maybe, as we said, they don't know yet either. I, I'd, like, I'd like this to play out longer, of course. I'm interested in Nacho's story. I'm interested in Kim's story. But... I imagine there will be a point where then you yada yada all of Breaking Bad, and then do you pick up and do an entire season with Gene? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's very exciting to imagine them what they decide with that. You know, I mean, Um, it would be pretty revolutionary if they decided to tell a contemporaneous story with Breaking Bad from the perspective of Saul. I I don't know what he was doing in between the episodes. Yeah, or when he wasn't in those episodes, or the phone right. call. I mean, they if anybody could pull that off, it would be those guys. And the only reason why I'm not, I wouldn't be shocked if they did do that is because even though Breaking Bad obviously came to its like conclusion, and I think everybody was ready to walk away from the story, and it had it it was right to end it where they ended it. It by it really did sound like nobody really wanted to stop making that show. Yes, and I think that's a, that is a question going forward. I, th- I think that they've shown remarkable restraint, and um, you know, they, they Breaking Bad didn't overstay its welcome. And we're in season four. The idea of Saul going more than six seasons—I mean, even six seasons—already feels crazy considering what we all expected when the show started. Um, but there is that lingering question, which is: they love this world. They love these characters. They're really good at it. They love being here with the, with the crew and the local cast, some of whom I met today at local auditions and they were delightful. Um, I get it, you know, I, I get that. And again, that's another refreshing thing about this team, which is when many of us, and we probably, people could pull up the tape from a podcast when, when we heard they were making the, the, the prequel, we were probably like, that's just a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Like you just, if you make, if you're lucky enough to make something that's considered a masterpiece, just close, you know, turn off the lights and walk away slowly. Right off into the sunset, um, yeah. But these guys were like, we love what we do and we're pretty good at it. So why not keep going? And boy, they, they proved everybody wrong. So it, it's exciting. And, and this is an exciting season. And if, and if people have listened to this long, who are maybe feeling a little and didn't mind being spoiled as, as lightly as we spoiled, um, it's all on, you know, up to now is on Netflix and it's a great time to watch in that way or just pick it up because it's, it's pretty close to breaking bad now. Absolutely, man. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to talk about The Meg, Crazy Rich Asians, and Black Klansmen. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ExpressVPN. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to corporations for profit. Take back your privacy with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. It is rated number one, the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and costs less than $7 a month. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi or don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider, ExpressVPN is the solution. Look, it's no secret 
that you don't have any secrets. The idea of your personal data is such a huge story right now. ExpressVPN essentially provides you, the consumer, with a peace of mind, which is something that not a lot of places are offering right now. If anything, I think that we're all living in a time where we feel like anything we do or say online is being recorded, it's being shared, it's being monetized by other companies. This is your shield against that. ExpressVPN is your safety blanket. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash watch. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash watch for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash watch to learn more. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. You can explore the vast number of things you can do with a secure smart home like you can have doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or you can do turndown service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. Or even the worry-free getaway service, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. That's really crucial. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. And don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. All right, Greenwald, we're back. And one of the, uh, you know, there's not very many things that are in it for me for you to be in New Mexico for this extended period of time. I, get, I don't get to see you. I don't get, we don't get to, to critique each other's facial hair. But Do you miss my musk? Is that I, what miss, you're I miss your musk. I miss your scent. But <laughs> we don't, we, we do get a little bit of uh, Cinema Andy. Cinema Greenwald is in the building. Yeah, I got to say, we don't need to be on planes anymore. We just need a, a slow weekend without the family. <laughs> you, you sound like Avon. <laughs> you, know, there's a, you sound like Stringer just staring over the, the multiplex. We don't, we don't need planes no more. Nah, man. Nah. Um, okay, so... Do you, know, do you know that there are movie theaters here in America that have reclining seats? Yeah, man. Like, like airplanes? Like there's a button and you just lie down? That shit's cozy. Absolutely. Did you know about that? Yeah. Um, do they have those in New Mexico? You, oh, you thought I was just like Googling comfortable movie seats <laughs> in other places? How much free time do you think I have? No, so, I mean, I went to the movies and I was more comfortable than usual. Really? Okay, so let's... It actually made me feel, Chris, like I was on an airplane. I was sober, but otherwise it was very similar. So would you, what would you say is the best movie you saw this week out of the two movies? <laughs> I don't like to use absolutes or binaries, good, bad, you heard this crazy, rich. <laughs> no, I frankly, I don't listen. Um, big fan, though, of what you do in general. <laughs> my, uh, you know, my pronunciation of Reese Horton's name. I have to say, this was a different experience because up till now, if, unless I was on an airplane, if I went to a movie, it is a commitment. It is a commitment of time. It is a commitment of babysitting money, or it's just like, I got to find a morning to like get into the Ant-Man before we podcast or whatever. This was different. This was just seeing movies like a normal person. And I felt a great sense of relaxation doing that because I was just experiencing it and I didn't have the highest expectations one way or another. I was just looking for a small you know, modicum of entertainment. And I will say I saw Black Klansman and I saw Crazy Rich Asians. If you want a version of an answer to your question, I will say that... Uh, one surprised me by being not as good as I had hoped, and one was better than I thought. Okay. Let's talk about Black Klansman. Yeah. Um, I am a big, big, big Spike Lee fan. Uh, like, and even late period Spike Lee, like, I weirdly, st- I love Girl 6. Like, you know, like, I definitely have been on this journey with him for most of my adult life. I remember seeing Do the Right Thing in theaters. I remember having a pretty life-altering experience seeing Malcolm X in theaters when I was younger. So it's, I, I'm coming to this movie with a real, you know, it's a home field advantage for Spike. And I have to say that I, I found this movie almost unwatchable. Um, just on like a very basic plot logic, uh, scene, inter, like scene logistics level, I found it to be pretty weirdly amateurish in places while understanding that part of the, the appeal of the movie, that it was a a feature, not a bug, that it was constantly tone shifting. 
Um, and I'm happy to be argued with in terms of what certain certain tone shifts meant for the overall story, but I found it kind of mishandled in a lot of places and um, pretty weirdly uh, benign in its impact with me, despite the fact that, you know, it's a miracle that a movie like this is in movie theaters in 2018 and it's talking about such wildly urgent shit and stuff that we really need to have in our movie theaters and the kind of thing that I think we all wish we would be confronted with more in movie in, in our everyday movie going experience, as you say, like when we're like mostly just like, oh, let's go see Ant-Man and the Wasp, I guess. Like, it's great that there is this essayistic half cop movie, half sort of polemical treatise on race relations in America over the last, I mean, since the since the Civil War, essentially, leading up to the current state of our national politics. But on a very basic level of like, why is this guy in this scene, but not in the next scene? And why are, why did this person do this at all? Uh, was, I thought, pretty much a failure of a movie. Well, I don't disagree with you very much. I think that I approached it from a slightly different perspective, which is, you know, there are people who earn a certain level of charity due to their past work and due to their consistency of vision. And much like, you know, like... If Lindsay Buckingham makes a solo record, I'm going to buy it, mm-hmm. and I'm going to listen to it, and I'm going to appreciate it because I'm a fan of the stuff that he does. Do I expect it to be Rumors or Tusk or even Out of the Cradle? No. I'm right. just like, I love what he does, and it's fascinating to me that he's still going. And I think of it as part of a longer conversation with an artist. And I think that there's a, there's a way to consider filmmakers that way, too. Like with Scorsese, who, you know, of course, there's a separate argument, which is that he's, you know, re- really still at the top of his game. It's more that when you buy a ticket to a master filmmaker, you kind of know what you're going to get and you roll with the bumps. And Spike Lee is certainly in that category. And, you know, it's a Spike Lee joint, meaning why start the movie once when you could start it three times? Why end it once when you could end it four or five times? And then just dissolve into modern day news footage. You can do those things if you're Spike Lee and you sort of, that plus the double dolly shot, like you know you're getting certain things when you go in there. Um, This movie is baggy as hell in a way that I only disappointed me because um, there is, I think that maybe what you were bumping on is there's a version of this that is incredibly tight and uh, thematically consistent. And that echoes the urgency of its message uh, as opposed to a movie that just kind of hung around and just kept jumping into different styles and messing around with stuff. And then ended with the footage of Charlottesville, which is to me was, it left me in tears in the theater. I mean, it was, it was a gut punch, um, and, you know, we could debate what, whether you earn things by showing reality or whether that accentuated it or was a dodge. I don't, I don't even know if I have an opinion about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, there were definitely moments when I was frustrated, um, honestly, a lot in the beginning when you have the Alec Baldwin business and then you just sort of have this tossed off, like, let's introduce this character but forget to actually introduce him and then suddenly he's running investigations and it's a buddy cop movie. Mm-hmm. I think that that version of it where it is a more conventional buddy cop movie between John David Washington's character and Adam Driver, I, I really dug. And I want, I want to take a moment to say I want more 70s cop films with Adam Driver in them because that hair, that wispy mustache, and like the way the leather gun belt goes across his giant Kylo Ren back, I'm like, let's do it. Yeah, it's tough to come out baby. of Black Klansman and be like, I want the Flip Zimmerman sh- story, but... <laughs> I know. Yeah. But, but I did. Um, but... You know, it, it's like this with movies that are often, that are explicitly polemical. I mean, what it's a, what's being accomplished in it is noteworthy and often very praiseworthy, even as the filmmaking in specific moments or scenes fell flat. So I, it was a roller coaster ride for me, honestly, watching it. I was, there were moments when I was riveted and there were moments when I was just bored and there were moments when I was appalled, when I just felt like the, the, the way that he lingered on and the, and the wife and the constant invective. And I was like, I, we, we get this, you know, I, I, it, but there's so many layers. I mean, this is, this is a Spike Lee movie in, 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 in a, you know, that's a Spike Lee movie in a nutshell. I don't know if you saw the Boots Riley, the musician from The Coup, and also the filmmaker behind Sorry to Bother You, a movie I will hopefully see this week, um, and then we could talk about, took Spike to task for this movie, basically being like, this is, this is a pro-cop movie. Mm-hmm. And he took issue with that. And it kind of is. I mean, there's just so many ways to come at it that I think it was worthwhile. 
but weirdly, the movie I thought I was going to go see, which was not the not the Spike Lee fan Spike Lee movie, but like the every few years when he does one for them movie, like Inside Man, which I think is a masterpiece. I thought we were getting that movie, and it's it's just a it's yeah. just a late period Spike Lee joint ups and downs. And I think that the Jordan Peele factor in this movie was probably you know I I personally thought that if he had any fingerprints on it, it was in this sort of what if a, a black cop and a white cop had to split the identity of a person trying to pass in the Ku Klux Klan, but. You know, you could make the argument to me that this was actually a Trojan horse movie that that was like a cop movie. It was a cop movie or it was a, a political film and a political essay masquerading masquerading as a cop movie. And I would believe you. I'd say that that's fine. And, you know, you could go back to, you know, early 60s or mid 60s Godard movies where they're talking about, um, you know, socialism and and feminism and and the role of the individual in society and that's delivered via either a crime movie like a band apart or um, just a sort of soap opera like, you know, a, there's plenty of there's plenty of examples of that. But this didn't feel like that. This felt like a kind of a bungled cop movie that had a lot of pushing and pulling behind the scenes, which I don't know is if that's the case. But I'm saying that like. The the weird tonal energy of when they when they do the sting operation on Landers and everybody's like high fiving and and oh, like so weird. congratulating each other or the just bizarre logic of you have to be David Duke's bodyguard and it's like the only reason to do this is for the movie it's not because it makes any sense of a story or but if Harry that's Belafonte the point showing you, up to deliver a ten minute monologue about lynching. But I mean, if that's it, the it, point where you want to end up, why not just write the story so that that's where it, how it ha- happens? But instead, it's like this dude has definitely been talking to David Duke. That's weird. Like, why would you make him be the bodyguard? Yeah, I don't. It just didn't. It didn't click for me on a lot of different levels. I'm 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 really happy that movies like this are out there, and and I left thinking about a lot of stuff, which is good. And I even left thinking about filmmaking in a way that was really interesting and, and thinking about the choices people make and across the board. Um, another movie that made me think about filmmaking a lot was The oh. Meg. Wait, wait, wait. Before you do that, you set me up so beautifully just to have a little jag on Crazy Rich Asians, which I saw with Lily, our director here on Saturday. And I just want, the only thing I want to say about it was, in, like Black Klansman, my, the good feelings I have about the film aren't always about the filmmaking. You know, I think that Crazy Rich Asians is a triumph of representation, and I'm not the first person to say that. Um, but not just representation of, of Asians and Asian Americans on cinema, in cinema and on film, but of people who just want rom-com. It's bizarre that such a large segment of America is so wildly underserved. Because, you know, I, I have no idea if you're going to see it. Um, spoiler alert, they are, they are crazy, and they have a, quite a bit of money. Um, and there's some weddings and stuff that happen at the end. So I feel like those are irrelevant spoilers, but just to say that like, there's a, I'm, I was fighting the movie in the beginning and then by the end, I'm like, Oh, I remember what it's like to give in. I remember what it's like to feel like this and just, you know, enjoy the, the dresses and the whatever, like that's a legitimate feeling. And I think that for as much as people should be celebrating issues of inclusion and representation and success at the box office, which is 1 million percent legitimate. Let's not forget the other people that have been underserved here, which is fans of that type of movie. And it was a brilliant, I think, combination of, of both. I thought, it was, I thought it was wonderful for those reasons, because it certainly succeeds for a lot of the reasons it's being celebrated for. But it also succeeds because it really nails those rom-com beats. But honestly, I don't know where people have got, I guess people like that, that set it up movie, which I haven't seen on Netflix. But, yeah, that was good. You know, but the Mindy Project was like a five season ode to this sort of movie. And then finally, okay, we get it. We, we have it on the big screen with a budget with people like Emma Chan, who's just stunning, and Henry Golding, who's very dapper and dashing and should get 100 million film offers off of this. So, oh, and Aquafina is a star. Yeah. That, that's my only other is she? she is legit good. Yeah, she's really good. She's really good. That's good. I, 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 there, was a, uh, she, there was a talk of the town piece about her that I just read where she's she's basically got to break back into her own apartment with like a by throwing a jewel charger, you know, like the, the vape pen. The she's... <laughs> <laughs> I think she's the real deal. Yeah. I, I can hold this. So, okay, so now I'm ready. You talk I can. I can just. Uh, what? However good you feel about Aquafina, mm. 
I feel the reverse about the Meg. <laughs> I fucking, you wouldn't saw it. No, yeah, I because I love shark movies, and I love big dumb action movies. I really like Jason Statham, and this is just a complete fucking turkey. Like this is just like a really really big waste of fucking time. Um, and I'm not like I don't mean that. I I should have probably been high for this, and I don't really do that you know but like you probably need to be somewhat altered to watch this movie because as soon as it starts you're like oh okay like they didn't really think this was going to be this big of a box office hit because they spent like 11 dollars on it you know (laughs) it looks like the sets are made of painted styrofoam uh it is almost it's entirely set in china which i did not know which is Fine, like that's fine. I've actually never seen a shark movie set in China, but it is kind of, it just doesn't make any sense, like at all. And it's it's essentially, you know, it's sort of like Deep Blue Sea. It's just like there's this, you know, marine biology uh, research center where they're working with, you know, they're trying to discover new stuff, and then they unfortunately like put a hole in a thermal layer that allows like prehistoric sharks to come up to the regular sea. And wreak havoc. Um, there's this one amazing moment in this movie that I want to tell you about because okay. for a movie that's so uninventive and the special effects are not good, and even though Statham and Rain Wilson and everybody's trying hard, like it, it just kind of never gets off the ground. There's one moment where, and I can't tell, maybe this is an example of bad movie making or maybe it's an example of like the movie that Jason Statham thought he was making. So the whole prologue to this movie, I'm going to spoil it for you, is that Jason Statham is a deep sea rescuer, you know? And he's like one of the only people in the world who's ever made like an uh, 11,000 feet uh, rescue. And it opens with him having to make the tough decision to uh, seal two of his friends in a submarine as it explodes. I'm sorry, are his friends seals? I, I got <laughs> That would be a better movie. Okay. Um, he seals two of his co- colleagues in a submarine because he has to make the tough choice of saving them or saving like 11 other people. Right. So they die. Um, and then when he comes back, the doctor, uh, who has played a doctor on like in like 30 movies and TV shows, is right. like diagnoses him with like basically like water pressure psychosis or like whatever you get when you're like going crazy because you've been deprived of oxygen or whatever and uh or you're like too too far underwater and they have this like eventually like statham comes back to that kind of job and the doctor is of course working on this job so he has to like clear him and they watch the video of his interrogation of this person and in this video, which is like this black and white video that they're watching on a laptop of Statham being like, you have no idea what it was like down there, man. There's just this gargantuan, half-eaten muffin sitting on the table. <laughs> I'm so into this. This it's sounds amazing. This, I want an oral history of who on the set that day who was like, we're shooting this thing. It's going to be inside of a laptop. We just need to get like a couple minutes of footage here. We're going to do this. What could we do to really ground this scene? What could we do to really make people feel like this is an interrogation scene? I know. Billy, why don't you run to Starbucks and get me a banana nut muffin and then maybe like kind of put a little bit in your mouth so that it's crumbling and then just putting this fucking muffin in front of Jason Statham's hulking, excited frame. And it makes no sense. They don't eat for the rest of the movie. Here's what I, here's why I'm so happy you told this anecdote to finish off the pod today because everyone knows I'm never going to see this movie. That's never going to happen. But what you've just done inadvertently is explain to everyone why I like Lindsay Buckingham solo album. <laughs> because each one, in a sense, is a just confounding crumb from a mysterious muffin yeah. that has no reason for being there. And yet, we must ask why. Why is this muffin here? Who baked this muffin? And who, other than myself, still finds this muffin delicious? 
That's why we watch art, Chris. That's why we do this podcast. Yeah. I think this is actually quite profound. Well, because Jason Statham has since said, you know, and somewhat sheepishly, because this movie has made like $300 million already, and there will definitely be a Meg 2. And I bet Meg 2 will actually be way better than Meg 1, because they'll probably be like, we have to actually make a movie now. But he has said this was not the movie that he, like, read the script for, basically. Like, you know, he signed on to do one version of this movie, and it became something else in the production of it. But I wonder if the movie he signed up to make was interior office building, you know, but like whatever this guy's name is, Jonas sits at a table with an uneaten muffin crumbling in front of him. And yeah, that was like what that. drew him to the character. Yeah. Well, I think he's done many things in his life, in his career. You know, he's been a guy who holds a gun. He's been a guy who holds a gun and a briefcase. He's been a guy who holds two guns. But he's never been a guy who plausibly eats cars. He's been a guy so who's transported like, stuff. He's been yeah. a guy who's uh, been fast and furious. So he knows uh, the full range of human emotions. So this is a challenge for him. Yeah. I, I love it. It's given me something to think about. All right. We're going to wrap it up there. Greenwald, uh, we are probably, were we like 50-50 on you for Thursday? I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, I feel you're feeling good. bullish. All right, great. So Greenwald on Thursday, watch Saul. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about episode three on Thursday, and we'll have some other stuff for you. We're coming up on Ozark season two, man. It's so it's really I, close. You can smell it in the air. I can All right, smell, I can smell it in the air. All right, dude, have a good one. Great job, Brandy. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. People could get hurt or killed. You could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you could not be more wrong. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at nhtsa.gov. Today's episode of The Watch was sponsored by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids. Or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.